great setup, worshiping our Lord, Savior. I just love those songs that just speak to the, the glory and majesty of our God. Uh, let's keep this going. Uh, we're going to spend a little time in the Old Testament this morning. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. Micah. St. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. It's sandwiched right between those two books and the Minor Prophets. You know, a lot of people are spring breaking this week, including our pastor, Brother John. Now, some of you, spring break means nothing to you. But uh, for the vast majority of us, it's a healthy breather, especially for those of us who have kids in school. But look forward to uh, rounding out this morning with you guys in God's Word. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The question for us today is, what does God require of man? What does God require of man? Perhaps you've thought this many times in your life. Maybe you've been thinking that this morning. Surely you've thought at some point in your life, what, is really, what does God really want from me? And although we're not going to plumb the depths of this subject this morning, we only have a few moments this morning, the question of God's specific will on our life is a very big subject. However, there are many times in the Bible that God makes it very clear what his requirements are of his people in broad terms. When considering the broad context of all the people who claim him as father, he's made his will very clear. And this passage this morning is no different. In fact, we're going to see here in verse 8, give you a spoiler, that he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, God wants you. I mean, he wants your heart. He wants a heart of devotion dedicated to him alone. A heart that's not divided up into different compartments, different allegiances. He wants your whole heart fully devoted to God's glory. And he's much more concerned with uh, having our heart in the right place rather than just going through the motions. We can come into this place and go through the motions of worship, even uh, have sacrifice in our life, but we can do these things, unfortunately, without building a relationship with Him. And that's what He's most concerned with, is a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, the context we have here this morning in our text is that Israel, again, has been disobedient. All right, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that this is a recurring theme with Israel. All right, they, they wander, they stray, they rebel. And there's a continuing cycle of disobedience. Eventually, the people will cry out to the Lord, they'll repent of their behavior, God will extend uh, judgment, usually to get them to that point, and then offer them grace and forgiveness and restoration and blessing. Often for them to go back and do the exact same thing all over again. It's no different for us today, if we are being honest with ourselves. Thank the Lord that he's always there to uh, welcome us back home when we've strayed. So here, for the prophet Micah, the people have sinned against God again, and God is upset about it, okay? And so here in chapter 6, we see God's indictment revealed. In verse 1, we enter the courtroom of the Most High, and here we see God as the judge and the plaintiff in both. 
God is presenting his case against the defendant, Israel. And as with many court cases, uh, the indictment is revealed to the defendant and the witnesses are called. Let's look at verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you endearing enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against his people even with Israel he will dispute my people what have I done to you and how have I wearied you answer me so we have the witnesses they're called in this case it's the mountains themselves and the very foundations of the earth that are called as witnesses and why not Uh, these are things that have been around since the very beginning since Uh, The very creation of the earth, these foundations and mountains have been there to witness God's never-ending and consistent blessing, provision for his people. Uh, They are worthy witnesses to give an objective testimony here. Even Jesus himself has said that if men became silent, that the very stones would cry out to testify to his work. So God calls these as witnesses. Next... Uh, we see testimony is presented. God testifies to his loving care for his children, starting in verse 5. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. So basically, God is giving a list of testimony here. He's showing that, look, I delivered you from Egypt. Don't you remember that? Have you so quickly forgotten? I delivered you. Um, I, I took you out of that yoke of slavery and gave you freedom and purpose. He says, I redeemed you from slavery. He, he did this through a mighty act of his power through the plagues. He testifies to the fact that he gave them proper leadership through Moses and Aaron and Miriam. So the people didn't have any excuse. In verse 5, by mentioning Balak and Balaam, he reminds them of how he's turned curses into blessing. King Balak had commanded the prophet Balaam several times to curse the people of Israel, but God wouldn't allow it. And God blessed the people through the prophet Balaam. Finally, here in this last part, God reminds the people of how he brought them into the promised land. He reminds them of how he crossed over the Jordan with them. Uh, This phrase, where it says, from Shittim to Gilgal, would be understood by the people to represent that uh, deliverance across the Jordan River. Shatim and Gilgal were both on opposite sides of the river, so to pass from one to the other was alluding back to the fact that God supernaturally allowed them to cross over on dry land through the Jordan. God concludes his testimony here by by summing up the very reason why he's listed these actions and why he does these actions all throughout history. He says, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Basically, there should be no question concerning God's part of the covenant. He's been faithful. He has upheld his part. 
and the evidence is stacked against the accused. And of course, this evidence demands a verdict. You know, it's no different for the unbeliever. When we're confronted with our sin upon being presented with the Ten Commandments, and all the evidence of our lives is stacked up, it clearly demands the verdict of guilty. We are guilty before God. And that guilty verdict does come with a death penalty. And it's only through Jesus Christ, he's the only one that turns that guilty verdict into not guilty. It's because of his great sacrifice for sin. And so basically here in verse 5, God rests his case. You know, when we, when we are confronted with sin, uh, we have a tendency to either stonewall or maybe flee from the truth, flee away from God when presented with that truth of our sin. We can offer a response, and that response can, can be a variety of things, but oftentimes in our response we try to compensate for our sin in the wrong manner. Here in verse 6, we're going to see it's the defendant's turn to state his defense, and, and we have an example here in our text of man's inadequate response. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord make, take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Our relationship with God is unique. Uh, we cannot be in God's presence because of our sin, and yet... His forgiveness of sin that he offers to us is by his grace alone. It's only then we can enter into his presence. But I find it interesting that even though we cannot earn that salvation, it doesn't stop us from trying. Our text gives an example of man's inadequate response to being confronted with his sin. In this case, it, it seems like the people were trying to bargain for God's favor. Basically saying, what what is it, will it take to make it up to the Lord? What does he want? What kind of sacrifice does he want? Does he want a, a year-old calf, this yearling calf? That's a sacrifice represented of a cost because uh, it's much different than just simply an eight-year-old calf. This is some uh, animal that has been kept alive for a whole year. It's been fattened up. It's in good health. And so there's a certain cost there. So what he's saying, is this, is this good enough? Well, if that's not good enough, what about 10,000 rams? Will that be good enough to please the Lord? If not 10,000 rams, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? It's kind of like saying, will a billion dollars do, a trillion dollars? It's just this exaggerated scale that he climbs over and over, saying what is good enough for the Lord? He keeps going. He, he gets to the point where he says, shall I sacrifice my firstborn for my sins? even though human sacrifice was strictly pro prohibited. He ends the hyperbole with this, this greatest cost, and that being his own life. Shall I offer my own life? But even the sacrifice of his life was not what God is looking for. So what does God expect? People think it's all about rules and 
laws and putting on a certain appearance, saying certain things, being around certain people, uh, talking a certain way, staying away from other things, giving a certain amount of money, serving in the, uh, just the right type of service in the church. But all of those things in and of themselves do not equal a relationship with God. And it's the relationship that's important. So let's look at a couple of applications from this inadequate response of man. First, it's not about what we give, but what we receive. Okay? We can give everything we have to God, even our lives. But without that basic relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's empty. In order to have this relationship with God, we must receive Christ. All right? Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So receiving Christ is receiving him as Savior, and it's accepting the truth of God that he's revealed through him. The Bible calls it a free gift. That's Romans 6.23. But if something is free, if something is free, we tend to discount its value. I believe this to be human nature. Uh, we'd rather pay something or earn something rather than receive it as a free gift. I think this is uh, very present in other world religions. You, you look at all the world religions out there apart from Christianity, and you'll find some very devout followers who are very good at following rules and, and paying a great, uh, great sacrifice. But ultimately, it's going to end in their destruction apart from Christ. It's the same thing for products and services. We'll pay all sorts of dollars for uh, books or art or even food. But when something is offered to us for free, we either discount it altogether or we just tend to take it for granted. It's much like the way our kids can take things for granted if we always give them everything that they want without ever um, having them earn it. So let me give you an illustration of this, this, this concept of placing no value on free things. Now, does anyone know Joshua Bell? Joshua Bell? Okay. Um, now, I'm not referring to my brother. I'm referring to the world-famous violinist, Joshua Bell. Okay? So here's a picture of him. All right, the world-famous violinist Joshua Bell, not to be confused with missionary to London, our brother Joshua Bell, who's about to pack up his things and move off to London here very soon. Um, now, I know it's hard to get them confused, but the one on the left is the violinist I'm talking about, and the one on the right with my nephew, that's, that's my brother. They're both Joshua Bells, okay? So I'm going to be talking about the one on the left. And listen to this. In 2007... The Washington Post organized an experiment, okay? During the morning rush hour, uh, this world-famous violinist, the one on the left, stood incognito. He kind of dressed down, and he stood in uh, the entrance of the Plaza Metro station, and he 
played a brilliant classical uh, concert for about 45 minutes. And it was, as the Post reporter explained, quote, an experiment in context, brilliant classical, or experiment in context, perception of priorities, as well as unblinking assessment of public taste. Now, Joshua Bell routinely fills large stadiums. I mean, huge venues of people packing in worldwide. In fact, just before this experiment, he had an audience in Boston that was paying $100, $100 per person just to come and see him perform. But here in the Terminal Plaza, he was playing a Stradivarius from 1713, worth around $3.5 million, and the thousands of people walking by paid little attention to him. In fact, throughout the time he was there, he collected exactly $32.17. This world-class artist who would uh, normally collect $100 per person just to be able to, to see him from a distance. It's as if the commuters that hurried by, they didn't even slow down. And I think this gives a couple of applications for us this morning. One, in the context of our discussion, it demonstrates the point that people can miss the great value of something if it's offered with no cost. The same people who would have paid $100 to hear basically rejected the free offer that was there. It was the same music, the same person. The other application this morning is that no one in that plaza recognized the greatness that stood among them. What's worse is how many Christians can fail to recognize the greatness that is present with us as we gather for worship. We never truly recognize the greatness of our God that we're worshiping. That song this morning, Behold Our God, seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. This is a God who is great and mighty, and He's in our presence. We are in His presence because of His grace. Don't let this morning allow your hearts to be distracted. You know, there's other duties to get to. Maybe there's anxiety about the week ahead, or maybe a joy, anticipation of the week ahead. But just remember that we are in the very presence of God this morning. We're in the presence of something great, something that we can never afford the entrance fee to. All right? We can never pay enough to come into God's presence. He, he gives it to us as a gift. So if one inadequate response of man is to try and give and try to sacrifice our way to God, then the other is to try to work our way there, okay? So we must acknowledge that it's not about what we do, but what he has done. Again, you can look at all the other world religious systems out there in the world and see that all of them, to one degree or another, base their spirituality on what they do what they do, what they're working towards. In Christianity, we're, we're less concerned about what we do and much more concerned about what Christ has already done. The worshiper's question here in the text that we're going to see has been based upon a faulty premise that God wanted something. Micah's message has relevance for the church because this is still an operating idea for us in our modern context. The false assumption that God wants my money, wants my time, wants my talents and abilities 
in order for us to be of worth to him. Something we forget about is that God is still in the business of seeking people who hearts, whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's 2 Chronicles 16. This is the mission of Jesus Christ in his church. To seek and to save those who are lost. We're saved by faith, not by works. But there is a work that saves us. And that's the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. He said it's finished. And when he said it was finished, he meant it. He meant that he had done everything that was needed to secure our salvation. It was done. Oftentimes we hear the Christian phrase, what would Jesus do? And I don't find any problem with that phrase. It's, it's a fine phrase. It's a good tool for discerning the best course of action. We come to a crossroads and think, what would Jesus do? It can help you. But I think a much more appropriate question in our context is not what Jesus would do, but what he has done. What he has done. That's given us victory on the cross. And that victory not only secured our salvation, but it's also given us victory over sin itself. It is Christ in us that gives us the very ability to obey. And this leads me to a great quote that I want to share with you. I had this taped up on my computer in the office. And it says, the fire to do, the fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what Christ has done. The fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what he has done. You see how this works? The more we're soaked, the more we're immersed, baptized, if you will, into the knowledge of what Christ has done in our lives, the more our fire will be fueled to do his will for our lives. We, we do nothing for God that he has not already empowered us to do. And the pure joy that we should have from God's grace in our life, his rescuing us from sin, should be the fuel to live out our lives in obedience to him and, and to live a life of devotion to our Heavenly Father. Okay, so as we look at the last verse and we hear what God requires of man, I want to be clear that this passage is not about salvation. Okay? Yes, everything I've said this morning can be applied to salvation, certainly, because we're saved apart from works. And the Lord accepts us first on the basis of faith and repentance. That acceptance comes before obedience. But this passage in Micah is dealing with God's people who've already had a relationship with him. Uh, they've already been saved. They've been provided for by him. And, and now they've gone on to sin against him and they need to be restored. So the question here of what does God require of man is, is more than what does he require of us for salvation and more of how now shall we live? How now shall we live in response to that salvation? Let's look at verse 8. And we're going to find God's ideal requirement for his people. Verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
The response is given. This is what God requires. It's an idealistic requirement because we're not going to fulfill it perfectly, but nevertheless, it is required by God of man. His requirement emphasizes moral and ethical conduct, not religious ceremonies. Now, I know I've just finished trying to convince you that it's, it's not about doing things, all right? But this doing is different. This doing is different because it's in response, in response to what Christ has already done in your life. This doing is, is not to try to earn something from God, but it's in response to God, in response to that new heart, that new life that Christ gives us. Context in which Christians are expected to produce a spiritual fruit that's consistent with repentance. So simply put, we cannot do these things unless we've first been justified by faith and are right with God. Now, as we read this passage, I recognize the fact that maybe some of you are familiar with it. You've maybe seen it on bumper stickers or maybe plaques on a wall, um, even grafted into political campaigns. But most often it's, it's removed from its Christian context, uh, at least the context of a presupposed relationship with God dealing with salvation. I've seen this, this phrase used as a mantra for social justice. But as is often the case, the problem starts when we're trying to change the world apart from and through Christ. He's the only way. You know, unsaved people uh, who think that they're doing justly, they're loving mercy, they're walking humbly with God, are just fooling themselves because no matter how moral lives they live, doesn't lead to salvation. So these three little phrases are rich with meaning and come only as a result with a relationship with God. These are the acts that betray our true beliefs. First, to act justly. Now the Hebrew word here is mishpat. That's the basic meaning of what is right, what is proper, what's appropriate, fair. We should be people, we should be known as people who always do the right thing. That we're people that can be trusted, honesty and integrity, doing unto others as we'd have them do to us. It means following through on a promise. Even if we made a promise that we regret, we, we follow through because we're people of integrity. We do what's right. To act justly means to never rob God or cheat others out of their money especially the weak and defenseless. The concept of, of justice in religion reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 27, when referring to orphans and widows in their time of need. These are very vulnerable groups. And, you know, there's a lot of scams going on in the world today that, that prey upon these vulnerable types in society. Phone calls that make it seem like uh, official business from the government or some other business, mailings, telemarketers, emails, even commercials on TV seem to prey on the weak and vulnerable. And you know, the ironic part is that um, people like my grandparents, for example, who buy this sort of thing hook, line, and sinker, it's because they grew up in a time where you could trust people at least a lot more than you could today. 
And so when someone calls you up or you see something on the evening news, you just accept it as fact. And unfortunately, it's just not the case. You can't hardly trust anything you see today. Everyone's out to make money, even at the expense of others. I mean, is it ethical to put less and less cereal in a box that remains the same size and charge the same amount for it, going without notice? Is it ethical to promote the uh, large weight of a burger and you only read in the, in the disclaimer where they admit that it's the pre-cooked patty, it's the weight taken before all the, the cheap water and fat is has gone away, and so you're left with a quote-unquote quarter pounder, but it's not anywhere close. I could go on, but just remember that the people of God, we, the people of God, should be known as people of integrity and justice. Now, God also expects us to love mercy. This Hebrew word here that's often translated kindness or loving kindness, mercy, is a Hebrew word, hesed. It's basically the meaning of mercy, goodness, faithfulness, uh, kindness, loyalty. It's often used in conjunction with God's covenant relationship with his people. His loving kindness and protection towards them. And so the point for us today is that this kind of mercy is connected with our covenant relationship through Jesus. We can only give this sort of love and mercy because it's been given to us first. So are you a person known as someone displaying mercy? Let me ask you this. Is your first reaction to jump to a place with a person who has offended you that they should get what they deserve? Whether it's a person who cut you off in traffic or posted something on Facebook that you don't like, or the person in town that's made some terrible choices in their life and they're dragging the people around them down with them. It's your first reaction to extend them mercy? I think we want to acknowledge this morning, praise God for the kind of mercy he shows us. He gives us mercy where judgment is deserved. This is the kind of people that we should be, justice and mercy. And before I move on to this last instruction, I do do find it worth noting that these first two phrases, justice and mercy, they're actually the two sides of the coin when it comes to the gospel, right? Justice and mercy. God's justice and mercy intersect on the cross of Calvary. Now, it's not as if one trumps the other. God's justice uh, completely played out on the cross because his wrath poured out over Jesus Christ because of our sin. It was justice met on the cross. And yet, it's his tremendous love for us, his mercy, that kept Jesus on the cross in the first place. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is that, yes, we're sinners deserving of punishment, justice, but that Jesus took the punishment on our behalf, mercy. Just another reason why our lives should be marked by justice and mercy. Finally, God's ideal requirement includes us to walk humbly. No sin separates us from God like the sin of pride. Pride is the op opposite of humility. C.S. Lewis calls pride the essential vice, the utmost evil. 
And both Peter and James both say that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is one of those things that, that takes us to the point of salvation. We, we cannot come to the point of salvation without first being humbled in our sin, humbled before God, that state of faith, trust, and repentance. But humility also is what we display in our life as we walk closely with God. Um, remember, this verse, if you look at it closely, this verse doesn't say to be humble. It actually says, walk humbly with your God, which means we don't do it alone. God is with us. He's empowering us in our walk. And ironically, the closer we walk with God, the closer we, the more time we spend in his presence, the more humbled we'll be. So we're in our context, walking humbly with God means that we're doing things God's way. We're submitting our will to him, not our way, but God's way. And we're doing for God alone and not the attention of others. This is humility. And who are we trying to impress? For what reason do we draw attention to ourselves? Is it for the glory of God or for our own pride? In one sense, it could be said that by placing our will secondary to God, okay, submitting our will to His will, humbling ourselves, will eventually fulfill the first two, right? If, we're, if our hearts are properly oriented with humility towards God, then we will be treating others justly, and we will be extending mercy. And here's something to remember. Walking in humility starts on our knees. Ask God for provision here. Ask him to bend your will to his, and he will be happy to do so. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. These are God's requirements. This is what he expects from us. And remember, all of these requirements are something that we can do regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how people are treating us. This is something we can do between us and God alone. These are non-negotiables. These are expectations that can be filled by anyone in any circumstance. Now, you can't control the circumstances around you. You can't control the people around you and how they treat you. But the one thing that you can do within your ability to change is how you react to the circumstances that you're in. If you trust God in his control and know that he loves you, and he wants what's best for you. Your best strategy is to simply act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He will take care of everything else. Let's pray. Father, we, we do humbly come before you today, not out of fear. We do fear your majesty and your sovereignty and your power. But you've given us a, a great tremendous grace to be able to boldly come before your throne wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ your son would help us in that boldness to never lose sight of who we are who you are your tremendous grace and mercy we thank you so much for saving us in spite of who we are restoring us redeeming us giving us purpose and identity 
setting us on a new trajectory with a new life and new heart that only you can provide. Let us, out of that response, because of that great love and mercy you've displayed, live lives of, of tremendous worship and glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to reflect that light that you've given us to those around us and point people to the only hope we have in this life. Help us to incorporate these things that we've learned in our text today so that we can be known as people of God and point people to Christ, not something that we're trying to earn or pay, but out of response of what you've already paid for us on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we, we thank you in this time. We, we give this time to you. Ask your Holy Spirit to work among us and to direct us for what you'd have us to do next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us. We're going to have a time of invitation. Brother Bobby's going to be down here. and I don't know what the Lord's leading you this morning. It could be any number of things. He could be speaking to you in a variety of ways, each one of us independently. If you're here this morning and you've never established that basic relationship with God that provides the context of this passage, then I would invite you to come and get that settled today. Make that a reality. God doesn't want you to try and to do it on your own. He doesn't want you to try and to get yourself